Hi, Georgia Mills here to bring you the news that Hormones the Inside Story is back for a brand new series. This is the podcast from the Society for Endocrinology where we look at hormones. Now, hormones are the little chemicals inside us that pretty much run the show. They keep us alive and sometimes cause us a whole heap of trouble. But they're also the subject of lots of misinformation. So this is the series that goes straight to the experts for the science facts without the fiction. And in this series, we are bringing you tall tales about hormones and height. Because they were from Ireland, I kind of jokingly said to my colleagues that could there be a link with the Irish giant in the museum? And they just laughed at me. But I, I actually took my own silly idea quite seriously. We're taking the hype out of the hypothesis for time-based diets like intermittent fasting. The way those changes in the meal, the timing of the meal, or the size of the meal is going to work is by changing your hormones. So if we could figure out that middle step, then in theory you could tap into that knowledge and you could maybe find a, a medicine or even a dietary supplement or something that does the same thing. And we're going on a quest for the hormonal fountain of youth. And so, you know, as a human, you can look at that and think, well, that's terrifying. I've got this exponential wall of mortality coming towards me, you know, inevitably as time passes. But as a scientist, you can look at that and think, can we understand that? Can we do something about it? And can we potentially prevent all of the horrible things that happen, you know, in the synchronised way in our biology that we call ageing? Plus, we'll be exploring the menopause and its supposed counterpart, the manopause, finding out whether humans are really headed for a fertility crisis and whether we can find the hormonal formula for happiness. The first episode is coming out November the 8th and you can get it on Apple Podcasts, Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts from. So make sure you're subscribed, tell all of your friends and I'll see you then. Hello and welcome to Genetics Unzipped, the Genetics Society podcast with me, Dr. Kat Arney. In this episode, we're getting in harmony with the science of music. Is there a music gene? Does musical talent really run in families? And how does the inability to perceive music impact on daily life? Music is a deeply human characteristic. Whether it's clapping, tapping, singing or playing, most of us love to listen or maybe move to a good tune and a funky beat. And there are plenty of music makers in the world, from school kids playing the recorder or making beats on a laptop to virtuoso concert pianists and global pop stars. But where does our musical urge come from? And is it in our genes? I'm one of three sisters, all of us playing at least two instruments from several generations of a musical family. So I've often wondered whether there was something in our genes that helped to make us musical. Or 
Maybe it was just being forced to go to piano lessons as soon as we could reach the keys. And being privileged enough to have parents who were prepared to fork out the money for a violin, clarinet, guitar, oboe, trumpet and, sorry mum, a concert harp. It turns out I'm not the only one to have wondered this. Raina Gordon is an Associate Professor and Director of the Music Cognition Lab in the Department of Otolaryngology and the Genetics Institute at Vanderbilt University in Tennessee. She's the recipient of a prestigious NIH Director's New Innovator Award for her work looking at the underlying biology of why rhythm means so much to us. So who better to sit down with for a chat about music, our brains and our genes? For a long time now, I've been interested in the relationship between language and music in the brain and in how that manifests in behavior. And those interests eventually led me to genetics to really understand how and why humans develop musical traits and how that then intersects with their language abilities. What do we know so far about the extent to which music is in the genes. I come from a very musical family and everyone always says, oh, it must be in your genes. You know, it's your dad yeah. and your granny. So, you know, what, what do we know so far? Is, is there a, a music gene? Um, how, how do we go about trying to, trying to understand this? Great question. So there's not a single music gene, <laughs> I will say. Um, there's probably many genes linked to musicality skills. And, and you're right that people have many intuitions about the genetic and environmental contributions towards music and musicality. So when I talk about musicality, I'm really talking about people's musical behavior and musical interactions. And that is a very broad definition that includes a person's potential for music engagement and music experience. It can take the form of aptitude and skill or even the propensity for music training as well as music listening and other aspects of music engagement, such as how much we love to listen to music or how much some of us love it, right? So it varies. So there are many different aspects of musicality. And you're right that people have these intuitions about the genetic and environmental aspects of this. So we talk about musical talent running in families, but we also talk about how the amount that you practice and what type of music you're exposed to and the amount of music you're exposed to and the sort of musical culture that you grow up in, how that all may influence your lifetime relationship with music. So what we know from the data is that there are both genetic and environmental contributions and that for a given individual, we can't easily say, oh, for you, it's because of genes or for you, it's because of the environment. But when we look at populations of people, we can look at how much variability is explained by genetics. And so there are multiple ways that we can do this. We can measure musicality with cognitive tests, with neural methods, even with self-report, like with questionnaires. And if we think in particular of the skill and aptitude, skill or aptitude aspects of musicality, um, we can think about tonality and rhythm. So tonality has to do with how you process pitch and melody and harmony and how different pitches come together to um, create music Make and how tune. we perceive it. <laughs> yes, exactly how we get a tune um, and how we perceive that. And then rhythm has to do with the timing patterns in music. And both the tonality aspect and the rhythmic aspect of music are, are moderately heritable. So what that means, and we know this from twin studies, what that means is that there is a genetic influence 
on how well people perform on these types of tests and and evaluations and even on the self-report. It's interesting that you talk about all the different elements because music isn't just one thing. You know, it is the the pitch, it's the rhythm. And I was wondering as well if there's anything that's been done about trying to look at people's aptitude and things like singing versus playing an instrument versus just dancing, you know, moving to music. Can we can we dissect these sides of it as well, the sort of how we appreciate and interact with music? Yes, absolutely. So there are many ways that we can do this. And ideally, we're going to do this in large sample sizes. For example, um, a recent study that I collaborated on looked at various different aspects in which young people, so um, teenagers, uh, were engaging with music and found that there is a heritable influence on a genetic influence on young people's um, engagement with singing and with dance, um, as well as with playing an instrument. So we know that these can be, you know, influenced also by environmental factors. And there's a, a portion of the variability that's explained by that, but there's also a portion that's explained by genes. I would love to know if there's a gene for annoying teenagers listening to music on the bus without headphones. So, um, <laughs> you write that grant, we'll get it funded. It's a piece of research that needs to happen. Um, I also wanted to know a bit about the the psychological traits as well. This is probably getting more into actually being a musician because, yeah. you know, I play a lot of instruments. I have spent uh, many, many hours of my life with a metronome just practicing. And it, it does take a certain amount of grit. You know, I'm going to do this rather than go out and have fun or, or watch TV or, or all the other things that I could be doing with my life other than doing my scales. So is there anything there about the sort of traits that, associated maybe with like being a performing musician or actually taking up a musical instrument? Well, I think a very basic thing that's been demonstrated by researchers who are working with the Swedish Twin Registry data, and that's been a great resource because they have assayed musicality, so to speak, within a, a large, large sample. So those researchers have demonstrated that not only do the the aptitude and the amount of musical expertise that vary in the population have a genetic influence, but also how much people practice. So we we tend to think of practice as being an environmental thing, right? Like you can choose to practice more and that may have an impact on the end result. But it turns out that the degree of musical practice um, also has a strong genetic influence. So I think it's important to question some of the assumptions we have about environmental influences on something like musicality and step back and say there, there may also be genetic factors there. I, you know, there's an active whole field of research in terms of the other cognitive traits that are associated with musical engagement. And for a long time, it was thought that particular aspects of musical expertise and music training were then having a direct impact on cognitive skills. And I think that that research is very interesting and valid, but I would say that those are associations and, and they may be along the line of correlations. They're not always causal relationships. So we don't always know whether music engagement is causing a change in cognition. It may be associated with a change in cognition, or it may be just associated with particular cognitive traits, particularly because of shared underlying genetics. So that's something that the field is looking at now. So let's unpack that a little. So this is the idea that if children say do music, it's going to be better for their cognitive development, but it might just be that the kids that are better at music are going to have 
better cognitive development anyway, because it's all like, it's all the same genes and it's all the same brain pathways that enable you to understand stuff better. Yeah, that's a great question. So I would say that there's partial overlap that makes it difficult for us to know sometimes whether it's the training that's causing the cognitive benefits or whether the cognitive benefits were there first. And so I, I don't think there's complete genetic overlap, but I think that there's probably some genetic overlap. Again, we know this from some of the twin studies that have been done with the Swedish twin registry. So that's something we should be really attentive to. And I, I want to really think about, or I want I want the audience to think about the fact that individuals are all different and that what works for one person may not work for another person. So a child that's very motivated and interested in music should have, you know, the opportunity to access those uh, music training um, experiences and other children may be less interested. And perhaps it's a question of just introducing it to them, but perhaps it's not really where their interests lie. And so I don't think we should have a one size fits all prescription. I think we want to really take things at an individual level. In fact, sometimes just by getting feedback from families. So not necessarily record lessons for all. Right. <laughs> right. But I think school music training is really valuable because it provides an introduction and and an, an appreciation for music um, and then gives children the opportunity to specialize. For sure. I want to dig into another sort of aspect of music and the brain. And that that is where we talked about originally about the connection between music and language. And so like, what's going on there? Like, what is that, the connection that's going on in the brain? Is it the same bits of the brain? Is it just because it's all just going through our ears? Mm -hmm. what, what do we know about what's going on there? So that's a really big question that I would say probably right now, hundreds of researchers are working on trying to untangle. So like you said, music and language are both auditory traits. Um, they don't only use the auditory system. They really use many, many different parts of the brain. So there's all different areas of the cortex as well as subcortical areas um, that are utilized for you know, various aspects of how we process language and how we process music. And it's thought that there's probably some overlap between some brain areas that process language and music. What's interesting, I think, especially from a genetics perspective, is that we see so many correlations. So I'll take rhythm and reading, for example. So there are now dozens of studies that have tested people's reading skills, whether it's in children or adults. This has been demonstrated in various, various age groups, and that have also tested their rhythm, whether it's asking them to tap along in synchrony to a beat or to tell whether different rhythmic sequences are the same or different. So there's different various ways we can quantify that. And in these studies that have looked at rhythm and reading together, they generally find a fairly strong correlation. So even though we know that the brain networks for rhythm and for reading are not really that overlapping, like they may share some nodes, but you know, they're also very distinct. There are still these correlations. So one possible explanation when we see phenotypic correlations is that there are underlying genetic correlations and that there may be subsets of genes that influence rhythm that also influence reading. So that those are the types of questions we're starting to ask and ways in which cognitive neuroscience and even experimental psychology are then leading us to ask genetics questions. 
So what can we do with this kind of information? You know, we we sometimes, I think, as geneticists fall into the trap of going, well, we'll find the genes and then we can make drugs and tests or, you know, we'll find the genes and you could imagine some kind of utopia where we'll just screen every two-year-old and go, are you going to be a concert pianist? Mm. Have you got the music genes or not? You know, so <laughs> what do we do with this information about the, the genes and the, the connection with our, with our brains and musicality and language? That's another great question. So I think it's the perfect time to be thinking about these things and talking about them because as this brand new field of the genetics of musicality emerges, there are all these ethical questions that come to light. So as far as the genetic models right now that are emerging, they're not strong enough to predict with confidence how one individual will turn out. So we could do a better job by asking the person or by maybe looking directly at their music ability rather than using genetic tests. And that sort of accuracy problem aside, I think ethically also, we wanna recognize that music is an important cultural experience. And sure, there's a small percentage of people out there in the world that don't enjoy music and don't wanna engage with it. And that's completely fine, right? Because we're all different. And I think genetics has helped me really appreciate the individual differences in humans. But you know, generally for most of the population, Music is important and engaging, and it's an important social experience. And there's also data to suggest pro-social benefits of engaging in music, whether it's just through music listening or whether it's through more active types of engagement. So I think we should really be cautious when thinking about the ethical applications. Now, I also have an active line of research on the clinical translational aspect. So I am thinking about how can we use the genetics of musicality in particular, to help people and to help the field. And one of the ways in which I'm interested in doing that, I mentioned reading already, reading and speech and language occur on a continuum, just like musicality. And we know from looking at already published literature that children with developmental speech and language and reading disorders are more likely to have rhythm impairments. They're more likely to have atypical rhythm abilities. Now, this isn't true for everyone. It's not a one-to-one mapping, but that's the case with most of these types of traits that vary widely across the population. And so I'm really interested, and my colleagues and I are very interested in how we might mobilize information about the genetic and neural architecture of rhythm, rhythm abilities, in order to better detect speech and language and reading disorders. So if we develop tools that allow us to say, to better assess risk for some of these speech and language disorders and reading disorders, perhaps by incorporating information specifically about rhythm phenotypes and about rhythm genetics, then could that then allow us to detect more children that might not be getting clinical services yet because they've fallen through the cracks for one reason or another. So even just on the risk detection, it may open the door to increasing access to services. Does that make sense? Yeah, and it sort of comes back a bit, I guess, as well to the the question that's still open, where we don't know whether it's a you know the chicken or the egg, whether doing music trading supports your language skills or sort right. of vice versa. And if if someone is very good at music, does that mean they're going to find it easier to learn foreign languages or, or learn language generally? And vice versa, if someone's very good at language, does that make them more likely to be good at music? And can you boost one or boost the other? 
Right, right. So yes, so I think on the one hand, we're seeing really strong correlational evidence. And on the other hand, we have not seen as much evidence that to me at least is convincing in terms of the causal transfer. But even if music training and music interventions don't end up being helpful for a subset of kids that need an extra boost for for speech and language and reading, maybe just that risk detection aspect could be helpful because they may be falling through the cracks with the, the normal method. So in one study in my lab that's ongoing, we're actually testing infants' rhythm perception using a method called EEG, where we put electrodes um, on their scalp. Um, and we just, oh, we're just- Oh, they're so cute, the little baby hats. Yes, it's super fun. <laughs> it's completely non-invasive, that babies don't mind. Um, and they listen to some musical rhythms. We record their brain data, we analyze it, and then we're looking to see whether that's gonna predict their risk of having a speech or language disorder when they're a little bit bigger. We're also looking at their parents' rhythm skills. So if, if rhythm has a genetic- influence, then assessing parents' rhythm may give us a window into the child's language development. So that work is ongoing, but I'm excited about it because it allows us to integrate these ideas that are really from very disparate fields. So cognitive neuroscience, communication disorders, human genetics, music cognition, these are all very separate fields, and we're trying to knit them together to make headway on an important clinical translational problem. So I've got a couple of like curious questions that I've always wondered about. So as someone who's a musician and someone who's a scientist, I've had lots of people say to me, it's like, well, you must be really good at maths. I'm like, no. And there seems to be this connection between maths and music. that I don't know where, quite where it's come from. I probably blame Bach for this one, actually. But like, is that a thing? Does that stand up anywhere from what you've seen? Yeah, I'm glad you asked about that because I also get asked this a lot and I'm always like, mm, let's talk about music and language because that's where we see the strong correlations. So there are some modest correlations between musicality and specifically music aptitude and general cognitive abilities. So those are well documented. But the specific relationship either with math ability or with music listening, influencing like visuospatial tasks, that has not really been replicated well. And so I think it's an idea that the public that's gained a lot of, it's gained a lot of popularity in the public, but, um, and certainly there are some individuals for whom this is true, but it's a small subset and it's not a really robust correlation. Um, The really robust correlation is between music aptitude and language abilities and language abilities, you know, that range from reading, which I already mentioned to second language learning, which you asked about, and uh, grammar skills, the ability to perceive speech in noisy environments. So that's also something that greatly impacts our communication ability, right? Can we, how well do, can we perceive speech accurately when there's background noise? And all of these tend to be correlated with various aspects of music aptitude, including rhythm and tonality-related skills. And this kind of brings us to the last question that I have, which is really, why does music feel good? Because there's certain (laughs) types of music that just like, they just make you feel good. And for me particularly, I really like kind of jazz and syncopation. And when it crosses the beat and you're like, yeah, that feels great. And when you hear a song that you love, it's like, oh, that feels good. Does science have any insights into why this is? Yeah, so this is a pretty hot question. 
It's not as much in my area, but I'll, I'll try to give you a little bit of insight. So I think one of the reasons that music makes people feel good is that it activates reward circuitry in the brain. And so we know that there are certain brain areas that are very active from a rewarding stimulus and music acts in that way. And in particular, so I, and I have, my research focus is rhythm. So I know more about rhythm. I'm partial to rhythm, rhythm and the beat. They're activating networks of brain areas, including subcortical areas, including the basal ganglia that are very involved in reward processing. So we're seeing a convergence there in the brain. And then it's exciting to me to think about how we're going to be able to ask questions in genetics with the new methods that are available to us to be able to actually understand this. So what are the genetic influences on music engagement and how do particular genes influence the development of brain circuitry that's then activated by music? And how does that intersect with ways in which we can use music to improve mood and to help us focus? Again, probably only for subsets of people, but I think that genetics can help to give us insight on the relationships between genes, brain, and behavior, and how these phenomena unfold, these very complex phenomena unfold. Raina Gordon from Vanderbilt University, very patiently answering all my questions. You're listening to Genetics Unzipped, the Genetic Society podcast. Find us online at geneticsunzipped.com and on Twitter at geneticsunzip. And while you're at it, why not tell a friend so more people can discover and enjoy the show? As we heard from Raina, music is closely linked to language in our brains. But although there isn't a specific music gene, at least to some extent, musical ability is in our genes. But what about the opposite? What about the small number of people who genuinely can't seem to perceive music at all? Jasmine Pfeiffer, from Heinrich Heine University in Dusseldorf in Germany, is a linguist by training, who's found herself involved in the world of genetics through her studies of a condition called congenital amusia, or hereditary tone deafness. So, what is amusia? Well, the scientific description would be it's a neurodevelopmental disorder that affects music and speech perception in a negative way. To present it in a more accessible way, I'd say it's uh, well a disorder that, that negatively affects how people perceive language and music. So, for example, musics cannot say uh, whether two songs are different if you take away the lyrics. So if you play them happy birthday and you take away the lyrics, they won't be able to tell you that it's happy birthday. Or if you play two piano tones, they can tell those tones apart. Or if you ask them to clap along to a rhythm, they can clap along. So is this when people say, oh, I'm tone deaf, you know, I can't sing in tune, I, I can't hold a tune. Is that the same thing or is this something more serious? 
Yes and no. So it is definitely more serious, but this is how we find the people actually. So all the uh, musics will say about themselves, oh, I'm tone deaf and I can't do all of that. But not all of the people who say that are actually a music. So roughly 15% of the population are said to be, are would characterize themselves as not musical and say they can't sing in tune, for example. But only about 1.5 to 2% of the population are actually a music. And so how are you trying to study this condition? Because as a geneticist, I'm I'm intrigued about, is this something that runs in our genes? Is this something that is in the environment? So how are you trying to figure out where does this amusia come from? So as I said before, I'm a linguist. So my starting point was probably different from what yours would have been. Um, I've been doing a lot of behavioral studies to start out with. So to really map the uh, phenotype of the uh, music. So in the beginning, when I started looking at this disorder 10 years ago, we really weren't sure whether language is even affected by this disorder. So this is something that I was really interested in. So I started looking at the language impairments that the musics might have. And we found quite a few language, well, impairments is a strong word here, but they do have trouble with specific aspects in language perception. So they have trouble perceiving intonation, so telling a statement from a question when the sentences are exactly alike. They have trouble with that, and then there's also trouble with certain vowels where they can perceive a difference, and um, we've been going at it uh, from this angle to start with. So how did that draw you then to music from this kind of tonal aspect of language? So I started being more interested in what was really going on in their brains and then also in their genes, basically. So we started doing EEG studies and uh, TACS studies to really figure out what was going on in their brains. So what's a what's a TACS study? How how does that work? It's, it's one of my favorite studies actually that we've done so far. It's a uh, it's electric brain stimulation. So there's magnetic brain stimulation that you can do, and there's electric brain stimulation. So we basically uh, introduced a current to their brain that a previous study had been found that was missing. We introduced that and tested whether that would make music a little bit better at a certain aspect. So basically a tonal memory, and we actually achieved that. So we could show that this specific current was missing in a specific brain area and by introducing that to their brain we actually made their tool memory a little bit better perception. Wow so you slightly zap someone's brain yes. and then they're better at hearing music. That's wild. <laughs> Yes, it is. Well, they weren't actually better, just their memory was better because it was that specific aspect that we focused on. But yeah, basically, it's it's absolutely wild. That, that's absolutely incredible. So let's dig into the genetic side a bit. So what? why do we think that there might be a genetic component to this? What gives us those clues? So there was a first study in 2007 by Isabel Peretz and her group in Canada. She's really the pioneer in this field. And she did a family aggregation study in 2007. So she had nine large families with 23 music individuals and she drew family trees and did a so-called family aggregation. So she calculated a risk that uh, a music's siblings would also have amusia. And from there on out, uh, people kind of thought that it was a hereditary disorder, but no one's really looked into it further since then. 
So I know that one of the ways that we study the inheritance or try and dissect how much is genes and how much is environment is through studying twins. So that, that's what I have to ask is like, has anyone looked at twins and whether this stuff kind of uh, is, is the same between identical twins or different? So yes, actually, we're very lucky. We just happened to come across one dizygotic twin pair. So we actually did a study on that. We were the first one. It's only a case study, I have to say, but it's still interesting, I think. So these are non-identical twins. These exactly. are basically like kind of brother and sister, but born at the same time, effectively. Yes, exactly. And we figured that would be a really nice example because they share roughly 50% of their genes, um, but they grew up in exactly the same environment. So the twin pair we had they were female 27 years old at the time of testing and they grew up together under exactly the same circumstances they went to school together they went to kindergarten together to school together to high school together and they even went to university for their undergrad degree in the same subject together so their upbringing is as similar as possible basically and what about their amusia or musia how, how does that go between them so yeah, that was the interesting part because one of the twins was actually a music and the other twin wasn't a music. So that was why it was so fascinating for us. Um, they had the same upbringing, they had 50% of the same genes, one had the disorder and the other one didn't have the disorder. So we figured this is perfect for trying to tease apart what was going on and uh, well that's what we did we applied a huge battery of tests we had them in the lab for like several weeks I think and did a whole test battery with them to see what was going on that's absolutely fascinating so what did you find when you started to look at them what's come out of that well, so first we looked at their musical aptitude, we looked at their language aptitude, and we looked at also their spatial perception, because there were a few studies claiming that there was something going on uh, with amusia and spatial perception as well. There was one study that found that spatial perception was somehow affected by amusia, and two other studies that found that nothing was going on there, but we figured we'd include it nonetheless, just to see what was going on. So we showed that the twins actually had an identical low pitch memory span which was really fascinating because for the non-music twin you'd expect a higher pitch memory span so pitch memory span basically means you uh, play a couple of tones and you repeat them and they have to say whether they were the same or not and then you calculate a span of how many tones they can retain in their memory and you would expect the non-music twin to have a fairly high span but she didn't so here was actually interesting again because pitch perception has been shown to have a certain uh, hereditary component by a study in the early 2000s so now we also wondered whether pitch memory would also be affected by this hereditary component. So that's really interesting because that says there's kind of different components to this isn't there there's whether you're perceiving the the pitch of a note whether it's high or low and then also how you can remember a tune and, and how long a tune you can remember. Uh, so that suggests that this is going to be quite complicated, maybe at a genetic level. Yes, definitely, definitely. It kind of hints at that this is like multi-causal or, or polygenic, basically. So that's the thing here. It's most likely that not only one gene is causing amusia, which would be like a nice simple solution saying, oh, this is like this gene and then you have amusia, but that's most likely not what's going on. So it's most likely different genes that somehow, well, 
are affected or affect one another. And it's kind of complicated, I think. Yeah, I mean, it's always lovely to go, oh, it's the tone deaf gene. And uh, you've either got it or you haven't. But um, yeah, genetics is often more complicated, isn't it? Yeah, I mean, the thing is, uh, there was one study that's not actually published yet, but I uh, listened to it at a conference. So again, Isabel Pretz looked at FOXP2, which is kind of sometimes referred to as the language gene. And she was interested in whether that might be causing amusia. So she tested a large cohort of amusics, but the, she actually found that this is not related to amusia at all. So um, at least we conclude that this has nothing to do with amusia, but now the question is still open. What is the genetic underpinning? Is there one? And what is actually going on? So I don't have an answer to that yet, but um, we managed to identify a large family that has four generations and we have one music in each generation, which is really nice. And we actually uh, took their DNA a samples and are analyzing them right now. Or actually we were analyzing them, but then our um, DNA got chipped off to Wuhan last year. And uh, oh, no. <laughs> yes, uh, so it gets slightly delayed the study, but uh, hopefully we'll have the results very soon and I might be able to answer this question in the near future, whether we can at least make an educated guess what is going on based on this first family that we're looking at. Oh my goodness, that that is a COVID uh, problem that I never expected that, because obviously they have huge sequencing facilities in China and uh, accidentally yes. sending your samples to the epicentre of a pandemic. Yeah, it was great. Oh no, I'm so sorry. <laughs> So when you get the answers back, that should be really fascinating because you've got, I guess, if you've got generations and then you've got some affected and some not affected, that should really help you to, to piece this together. I hope so. I really, really hope so. Well, we were thinking about different approaches about how to best do that. We could also have done a genome-wide association study, which is what we thought about first. But you would need such a large cohort of amusics that it's really not not feasible. I mean, I have a pool of about 50 amusics, which I've uh, recruited over the last 10 years, but that is obviously nowhere near or close enough to a big number that I would need for a GWAS study. So we figured, how else could we approach this? And then we were really happy to find this family. I'm really intrigued finally about the kind of cultural side of this, because there are some languages like Mandarin that are very, very tonal. And, you know, the same words just in the intonation can mean two very different things. Yes. <laughs> so, you know, source of a lot of misunderstanding in some cases. So is there any evidence that this connection between music and speech and language might be uh, different in, in different countries or that people with these kind of problems of, of amusia or hearing musical tones might struggle with some languages more than others. That's actually an excellent thought that, uh, well, a lot of researchers also had. Um, for the longest time, people thought there would be no such thing as musia in tonal languages because those people would have to be severely speech impaired, right? But as it turns out, there also seemed to be roughly about 2% of amusics in tonal languages. They looked at Mandarin and Cantonese and some other tonal languages and there are just as many amusics. But the puzzling thing is, in everyday life, they seem to be doing absolutely fine. So they have no trouble telling the tones apart in everyday um, speech. But then again, when you take them to the lab and you take away the context and they only have the tone, they struggle and they have difficulties. So that again shows that language utilizes so many different cues. So we not only have tone or intonation, we also have facial expression, we have context, we have gestures. So music's most likely also rely on those other cues more strongly than other people that help 
them in everyday situations to communicate normally. So even in our languages, German or English or whatever language you speak, you wouldn't be able to tell that you're talking to the music because some people think they will have a very flat intonation, for example, but they don't. I do find it incredible. And the more that I learn about the brain and, and the genetics and all the influences and everything that's coming in that we're processing and trying to make sense of the world, it's it's an incredible thing that the human brain does to just take all this stuff and, and make sense of it for us. Yes, absolutely. And I mean, it is so fascinating to see how like the different puzzle pieces can come together and how our brain makes sense of various information or then sometimes fails to do so in case of amusia when you take away other cues. I mean, one story that I always like to tell is about one lady that, that actually came to me in the lab and she just started crying because she was so desperate. Apparently, that's one thing where context didn't help her is um, her boyfriend or husband at the time was using irony a lot and irony strongly depends on intonation and she never could tell when he meant something in an ironic way and it apparently led to so many arguments that they finally broke up because she just was never able to tell when he meant something and when he didn't mean it and he just couldn't grasp why she wasn't able to oh, no. <laughs> so yeah I guess this stuff without the right context it, it can really be a problem yeah Yeah, definitely. And she was so desperate. I mean, and at least I was in a small way able to help her by explaining to her what was actually going on with her perception because she basically just thought she was going crazy because she just couldn't make sense of it and everyone else could. I guess that's one way to deal with a very annoying, sarcastic boyfriend. That's all for now. Thanks to my fascinating guests, Jasmine Pfeiffer and also Raina Gordon. We'll be back next time taking a look at cancer across the animal kingdom, from capybaras to elephants, plus that fan favourite, the naked mole rat. For more information about this podcast, including show notes, transcripts, links, references, music credits and everything else, head over to geneticsunzip.com. You can find us on Twitter, at geneticsunzip, and please do take a moment to rate and review us on Apple Podcasts, it really makes a difference and it helps more people discover the show. Genetics Unzipped is written and presented by me, Katani. It's produced by First Create the Media for the Genetics Society, one of the oldest learned societies in the world dedicated to supporting and promoting the research, teaching and application of genetics. You can find out more and apply to join at genetics.org.uk. Our theme music was composed by Dan Pollard and our logo was designed by James Mayle. Audio production is by the wonderful Hannah Varrell. Thanks for listening and until next time, goodbye. <laughs>